So this afternoon we'll continue with settling the mind in its natural state. Now, as a shamatha practice, it's good to know what these words mean. It's actually very specific. It's not some kind of vague label. This notion of settling the mind in its natural state, of course, does not mean in its habitual state, because we already know how to do that. But here, natural means, again, not, not something the opposite of artificial, uh, but rather natural in the sense of unconfigured, not already locked in, almost like our, our psyches are kind of frozen in. You have a man's psyche. You don't really have any choice. You know, as I point to Gonzalo, you have a man's psyche. You, you, you try, might try to imagine what it's like to be a woman, but you really can't because you're kind of locked into, you know, man. And then you have your ethnic background, language background, and so forth. So we're kind of locked in. Uh, and there's nothing particularly wrong with that, but it's a very configured state of consciousness or mentality configured by your particular brain, your nervous system, your background, your genetics, and from a Buddhist perspective, of course, past life influence. Whereas when we settle the mind in its natural state, it's really like this frozen mind, this configured mind, melts. And it melts back into that from which it arose. And of course, it didn't arise out of neurons, which is really, frankly, quite a silly idea, because chemicals don't give rise to, don't emerge or give rise to emotions and so forth. It's a, an outlandish idea but rather melting back into the substrate from which it arose, the substrate consciousness, which is unconfigured. So your substrate consciousness is not even human, let alone male, female, this ethnic group, that ethnic group, and so forth. It's really like a stem consciousness. So that's where we're going here. And not that it's a one-way trip. We don't want to just kind of dissolve back into the substrate consciousness and then just hang out indefinitely in bliss, luminosity, and non-conceptuality, as tempting as that may be. But it really is a dead end. If that's all you do, and you just hang out there and then stay there, as Jujum Lingba, the great Dzogchen master, said, you have not made, you've not moved one hair's breadth along the path to enlightenment. If that's all you've done and you stop, then you haven't, haven't gone anywhere at all. So we're coming back to this practice of settling the mind in its natural state as a process, as a flow, as a melting of the psyche, and as a disillusion of the psyche into the substrate consciousness. And for this, once again, the object of mindfulness is what? What's the object of mindfulness when you practice settling the mind? There's only one right answer. That's exactly right. The space of the mind and whatever occurs within it, the mental events. And it's very important. I'm not being kind of picky-picky here, just like I'm clinging to words. But it's important you have that because on occasion, when you're doing the practice, and you're focusing on the space of the mind, there will very likely be occasions when you can't detect any thoughts, images. You're just not getting any content. And then you might feel, oh, well, then I've got nothing to meditate on. Yes, you do. If you are thinking that, you're, that, that the object is thoughts and images and so forth, and then there aren't any, then you have nothing to attend to. You're out of work. But I'm keeping you at work all the time. This is a full-time job. So whether or not thoughts are there, when they are there, you're attending to their occurrence, how they play out and so forth. But even when no thoughts are discernible, there's still an object, and that is the space of the mind. But now, the space of the mind is not as easy to target, to identify, as the space of the body, which is really quite easy. And then in the practice this morning, when I said, attend to the sensations of the breath that manifest throughout the body, really quite easy, not that difficult to do, right? You know where to look, not outside your skin, inside your skin, right? But then when we say, all right, now we're going to attend to the space of the mind. Exactly where is that? 
Now, discard everything you've ever heard about the mind being inside the brain, because that's superstition. Groundless superstition with no empirical evidence behind it actually at all. All we know is that there are correlations between brain events and mental events. Very good. But for the two things to be, to be correlated, neither logically nor empirically does that imply they have to be in the same place. It's just a crazy thought, you know? But it's actually a very common thought now. Oh, yes, all thoughts are inside the head. Well, no evidence for that. So, so where is the space of the mind? Well, it's not located inside this little, this little container here inside your skull. But then if you think, oh, is it in front of me? Well, not limited to that either. So the space of the mind is wherever mental events occur. Now, let's take a good analogy. Where are sounds? And I'm speaking phenomenolo phenomenologically now, the sounds that we hear. I'm not speaking about ripples in the atmosphere, which are there whether or not we hear them, but the sounds that we hear. So if you listen for a sound in the, in the distance, like, for, for example, can you hear a very, very faint sound quite far in the distance off to my left, off here, way out there? Can you hear? Listen very carefully. Can you hear a very faint sound out there? If you can, your ears are much better than mine, because I can't. Okay. But you knew what to do. When I asked you, can you hear a faint sound way off yonder? You didn't say, oh, gosh, what will I do? I don't know what to do. You, you know how to direct your attention to a long way away, and you are not looking for something visually. You're not looking for a thought or an image. You are attending to the auditory space far out to my left, right? And so sounds, so how big is the domain, or the, how big is the auditory space? Well, as big as the domain in which sounds occur. So some sounds you can hear, oh, that sound came from a long distance. I hear that sound way over there, right? It's true, isn't it? Sometimes, sometimes we'll hear a sound inside our heads, kind of a buzzing or what have you. It can be to the left, like clear, behind us, in front of us, and so forth. So that, as an analogy, the space of the mind, you can locate it, because that's, excuse me, the space of sound. How do you know where it is? Well, wherever sounds are, that's where the, spa the space of sound is. And likewise, the space of the mind, wherever thoughts, images, and so forth, any type of mental event occurs, that's where the space of the mind is. So it's inside your body. You can visualize images inside your body and tantric practice, Vajrayana, doing that all the time. Seed syllables and light and nectar and chakras and nadis and all kinds of things you can visualize in there, as well as visualizing intestines and heart and lungs and you know, body parts. Um, but you can also visualize things outside, outside of your body and even in distant space. You can look up at the constellations and say, oh, this, there's the bear, there's the twins, there's the scorpion. It's, they're the fish, you know, Pisces, and so forth. Way in deep space, you can imagine images, which we do. The Big Dipper, for example, on the northern, northern hemisphere. Oh, yes, there's a Big Dipper. There's no Big Dipper there. But we connect the dots, and then we see a dipper. And the dipper that we see, of course, is something arising in the space of the mind. So without further ado, I'd like to go right to the practice. And this time, we're going to kind of spiral in on it. It's a practice I've taught many times. Quite practical, especially for people... Uh, who are not familiar with the practice and kind of like feel a little bit disoriented and a little bit off balance, like I'm not really quite sure where to look. Well, we're going to identify where to look by a process of elimination. Shamatha practice always entails selective attention. It's never just open awareness. If it's open awareness, that's fine, but that's not shamatha. Shamatha is always selective. In modern psychological terminology, 
The shamatha always entails executive control. It's a technical term in cognitive psychology, a very useful one. It's where you're really taking control of your attention and directing it here or there. And there are other aspects of, of executive control as well. But it's selective, right? You're choosing to tend to this and therefore not to that. In this practice, although sounds will impinge upon our awareness, tactile sensations, of course, will continue to arise. We keep the eyes at least somewhat open so the visual imagery is coming in. But we're not deliberately giving attention to any of those. We're selecting out of the six domains of experience, we're selecting just that one domain that is purely mental and not sensory, and that's where we'll go now. By a process of elimination, we'll find the space of the mind because that's what's left over when you're not deliberately attending to any of the five sense fields. So, kind of a practical technique. Please find a comfortable position. We'll jump right in. Success or failure in this practice of settling the mind in its natural state is directly related to your ability to relax from the core. If you're tight, if you're grasping, it'll be very difficult to succeed in this practice. So we begin as usual with the body, relaxing the body, the shoulders, the muscles of the face, Set the body profoundly at ease, still and vigilant. And let your respiration settle in its natural rhythm, as effortless as if you were deep asleep. And release all grasping onto thoughts pertaining to the future and the past. And with a deep sense of release, even of surrender, let your awareness come to rest in stillness in the present moment, naturally clear, luminous, 
and cognizant. For a couple of minutes, calm, stabilize your attention with mindfulness of breathing. You may count 21 breaths, or if you prefer not to count, simply engage in the practice, releasing thoughts with every out-breath, grounding and stabilizing your attention.
And now let your eyes be open and redirect your attention single-pointedly to this elliptical field of visual impressions, the visual space in which colors and shapes arise. And as the Buddha counseled, in the scene, let there be just the scene. To the best of your ability, quietly, non-reactively, non-discursively, simply witness what is arising to your visual perception. in this visual space, without labeling, without grasping, without superimposing conceptual constructs. Just be present with the colors and shapes that arise to your awareness. Be aware not only of the shapes and colors, but also of the space, this three-dimensional space in which these appearances arise. Then close the eyes. Now direct your attention single-pointedly to the space of sound, this three-dimensional space all around you, inside and outside the body. Focus on this space and whatever, on whatever sounds arise within that space. And again, to the best of your ability, avoid projecting images, thoughts, constructs upon what arises in that space, attend to the sounds nakedly from moment to moment. In the herd, let there be just the herd. and to both the auditory space itself as well as to the sounds that arise within that domain of experience.
And now direct your attention single-pointedly to the space of the body, the somatic field, and to whatever sensations arise within that space, the sensations of the earth element, firm and solid, the water element, any sensations of moisture, fluidity, the fire element, the whole gradient from cold to hot, the air element, any sensations of motion, including tingling and vibration. And all of these sensations arising within the space of the body. In the felt, let there be just the felt, with as, li with as little conceptual overlay as possible. Within this somatic space, there also arise feelings, pleasant feelings, unpleasant feelings, neutral feelings. Attend to these as well. Observe whatever arises within the space of the body and sustain that flow of mindfulness without distraction and without grasping onto anything. Simply be present discerningly but non-reactively present to the space and whatever arises within it. Now let your eyes be at least partially open. But unlike before, do not deliberately focus your attention upon any visual object, but let your gaze rest vacantly in the space in front of you, that intervening space. Now observe very closely, apart from the visual impressions, sounds, and tactile sensations, and setting aside smell and taste, apart from these sensory appearances, what else right now do you directly perceive 
what else directly appears to your awareness apart from appearances by way of the five physical senses. Observe very closely. What is left over when you're not focusing your attention on any of the five sensory domains is the domain of the mind, that field of experience that is purely mental, the space in which discursive thoughts arise, mental chit-chat, mental images of all kinds, memories and fantasies. Selectively focus your attention single-pointedly on that domain of experience, the space of the mind, and whatever arises within it. Whatever thoughts or images arise within this domain of experience, simply observe their nature without analyzing them, without identifying with them, without letting your attention shift off to the referent of the thought or image. Just observe what is arising here and now in the space of your own mind, as if you were experiencing a lucid dream and 
simply observing whatever arises within the space of the mind. But without identifying with it, without reacting to it, free of preference, simply bear witness to whatever arises from moment to moment and sustain the flow of mindfulness without distraction and without grasping. Monitor the flow of mindfulness with your faculty of introspection. Recognize excitation and laxity as swiftly as possible and apply the antidotes. Let's continue practicing now in silence.
corazón. So within the Buddhist tradition, there are many different types of methods for developing shamatha. All of them culminate in the coarse mind dissolving into, call it the bhavanga, substrate consciousness, subtle continuum of mental consciousness. So all, they say all roads lead to Rome. Well, all shamatha methods do lead to that dissolution of the coarse mind into the subtle mind. But the different methods do have each their own strengths. And so the practice of mindfulness of breathing is a particular method that the Buddha highlighted, really strongly emphasized, explicitly as a direct preparation for these foundational vipassana practices of the four applications of mindfulness. So you practice mindfulness of breathing, develop shamatha, and then immediately apply that finely honed mindfulness that you've cultivated through the practice of shamatha, and you apply that to the very careful investigation, observation of the body and feelings and mental states and phenomena at large, so that he highlighted that. It's just a perfect segue or transition into closely applying that kind of mindfulness to our presence here in the world. In Tibetan practice, Vajrayana in particular, in Vajrayana practice there's an enormous emphasis on the role of visualization, which gets very, very elaborate uh, in many, many practices. And so if one is really gearing up for Vajrayana practice, stage of generation practice, stage of completion practice, then the most strongly emphasized and taught method, if you're gearing up for these very elaborate and very sophisticated visualizations that take place, for example, in the stage of generation and completion, then getting to shamatha by way of visualization really prepares you very well, well for that because you're using exactly those faculties of visualization that you'll then later utilize with tremendous sophistication. But now within Tibetan Buddhism, these, these meditative traditions of Mahamudra and Dzogchen, which really have as their paramount focus, theme, emphasis, the understanding of the nature of the mind, penetrating through the nature of the mind to the substrate consciousness, penetrating through the substrate consciousness to primordial consciousness. That's what it's all about. But these two, Mahamudra and Dzogchen, it's really fundamentally about nature of mind, nature of consciousness, multiple dimensions, tapping into and fathoming the full potentials of consciousness, its origins, its nature, and its full potential. So that's central. And for those two traditions, which uh, the Mahamudra very clearly is practiced in all four traditions, Dzogchen also to varying extents, primarily in Nyingma tradition, uh, but in, in the others as well. Uh, in these two traditions, the method of shamatha that is emphasized more than any other is this one right here. It's a perfect preparation. There you are. It's like you're setting up your telescope and getting it really focused in the night sky. And so once you've, you're, you've got it well, your, your telescope is well mounted, the lenses are well polished, they're clean, they're focused, you've now directed your attention the right way. Okay, that's called stargazing. But it's one step away from astronomy where you're really then inquiring into the nature of these celestial bodies. And the interesting thing about it is those images, I find it interesting, the image you're, you're seeing when you look through a telescope, whether it's a 100-inch telescope like up above Pasadena on Mount Wilson, 100-inch telescope, uh, but you're still looking through an eyeglass. You're actually looking with your eyeball. Or whether it's simply a little, you know, a little telescope like 10 or 20 power, the images you're seeing, what's so interesting here, the images aren't the, out there, of course. Whether you're, whether you're looking at sunspots, whether you're looking at craters on the moon, planets, 
galaxies, nebulae, whatever you're looking at, all those beautiful images that we get, they often come in the popular media, you know, these incredibly beautiful full-color images of all kinds of things, galaxies and so forth. Of course, none of those images are out there with all those wonderful colors. None of those images are out there at all. All of those images you're seeing actually occurring in the space of your own mind. Quite interesting, isn't it? That where science started, looking deep into the heavens, every image they're seeing occurs in the space of your own mind. Now, does this mean they're not looking at stars and planets and galaxies? Of course they are. But by way of the images arising in the space of their own mind. So, this is, this is the method that's most strongly emphasized, and we'll continue with this one for the next week. It's, and we'll find, as if you move from this method into Mahamudra meditation per se, Dzogchen meditation per se, you'll find it's a very, very smooth transition. It's really quite brilliant. So, moving on now, as our one week is already pretty well passed, uh, there's a question lingering over from Saturday. It's a very good one, so I'd like to attend to it. That pertains, of course, to karma. So here's the question. While awake, we accumulate karma through our thoughts, both voluntary and involuntarily, through our karmic imprints from the past. Well, of course, there's, there are two things taking place there, and that is independence upon past influences, our habituations, karmic seeds from the past, and so forth, images, thoughts, dreams will occur. But then, of course, we're generating fresh ones, some of them voluntarily, we're generating fresh ones. And the issue of karma, of accumulating fresh karma, which then is depositing these seeds in the stream of consciousness, this occurs when we're voluntarily or deliberately engaging in mental activity, or, of course, what flows out of that verbal activity and mm, physical activity. Influenced by the past, but not predetermined by the past. Okay? So it's neither predetermination nor is it chaotic. It's something in between. One can spend a lot of time discussing that, but not right now. This is leading to a question, though, and there's this whole issue of accumulating karma through our thoughts. Does this apply also to our dream state? So when you're dreaming, and whether you're having a very virtuous dream or whether you're having a very non-virtuous dream, uh, are you accumulating karma while dreaming? The answer is yes, yes you are. Is it the same as in the waking state? Well, just for starters, let's take this, highlight this point uh, from last Saturday again, because it's a very important one. And that is, if one is mentally ill, especially psychosis, paranoia, schizophrenia, and so forth, and one acts out of delusion, that's really simply triggered by one's mental illness, but acts voluntarily, is there any karma? There is, but it's not nearly of the, the power or doesn't have nearly the repercussions as if you did the same actions with a sane mind, with a clear and sane mind, right? And so we have this whole gradient from total psychosis in which one might kill somebody, but it's coming out of, you know, being mentally deranged or, of course, brain damage. Or someone might slip you some kind of a drug that creates some real malfunction in your mind uh, because of messing with your brain. And so on that spectrum, there is some karma but the impact is not very heavy. And then, then let's just move along the whole spectrum from being mentally severely impaired to mere, merely being neurotic, or let's say drunk, to being pretty normal, to having a heightened degree of clarity, of discernment, 
stability, real coherence of mind, and then moving right along this smooth spectrum from total insanity to radiantly clear, stable, superbly balanced mind of a person who's spiritually and psychologically very evolved, very, very mature. On that whole spectrum, the further you are along, are along the spectrum to superb sanity, to spiritual awakening, to liberation, the more powerful your deeds, for better or worse. So all, there's a symmetry there. So with great clarity, great intelligence, premeditation, if one does something really unwholesome, very non-virtuous, the impact of that is much, much stronger. The karma is stronger than if you did this while you're drunk or you're mentally deranged and so on. So now taking that as an example, I think that's a rule of thumb. Again, as the Dalai Lama said, the greater the clarity, the greater understanding, the greater intelligent discernment, the more responsibility you have. Because for better, better and worse, your actions have a, a more powerful impact. Heavier karma, stronger karma. Well, now let's take the case of a non-lucid dream. Well, just for starters, you're delusional. Because if you're non-lucid, you don't know you're dreaming. So you're fundamentally ignorant about the nature of experiences you're having. You don't, know, you, you don't know that it's a dream. But you're not only ignorant, you're also delusional. Because if you're not lucid, in all likelihood, you're taking the people who encounter the dream as being really there. You really think you are that person in the dream, which you are not. And every, all the activities and events taking place in the dream, you think they're really out there. That's why, you, that's why it's called non-lucid. So you're ignorant and you're delusional. So this implies that just for starters, whatever voluntary you acts you, you, you make, you commit in a dream, will not be as heavy as during the waking state when you know you're awake and you're acting accordingly. That's just for starters. But again, we could spend the whole 45 minutes on this one question, and I would like to move on. But it's a very important question. Here's another factor, and I'll end on this one. And let's take a nice example rather than... Again, a really heavy, negative action. Let's imagine, okay, there's Paolo right in front of me, and let's imagine I, I sense, or whatever, I have a sense, Paolo's really thirsty. I say, oh, Paolo, I've got a fresh glass of water, I've not touched it. Would you like some water? I think you, you look really parched. And imagine he is, you know? He says, oh, just what I was wanting. Thank you, Alan, I could really use that. And I give him a glass of water, okay? And it's simply out of kindness. I think, oh, he's, he's thirsty, and I can, get, I can do without the water. So I give him the water, and he drinks it. It's very refreshing, it's good water. He says, thanks, you're welcome, and that's the end of it. Well, there's karma there. It was a sim very simple thing. I, I sensed that he was thirsty. I give him the water, no strings attached, you know, no attachment, no expectation, just doing something kind. He drinks it. His thirst is slaked. He's satisfied. So there's karma there, and the karma is I recognize that there's Paolo, and somehow I know that he's thirsty. He would like some water. So there's a recognition there of the person I'm going to engage with. And then there's the intention. I, oh, I have some water, and he would like some. Why don't I give him this water? It's, it's clean. And I give it to him. There's the action. So there's an intention to give it. And it's a benevolent intention. I'd like to do something nice for him. And then there's the actual giving of it itself with that intention. And then he receives it. He receives it. And he drinks it, and he's satisfied. So there's the culmination. He actually takes the water, he drinks, and, I'm sat, and then I say, oh, you got the water, you drank it. Ah, good, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Okay? So there's the recognition, there's the motivation, there's the enactment, and there's the fulfillment. And the fulfillment is when Paolo is actually drinking the water, and it doesn't look like he's thirsty, so... I got it. If this were taking place in a dream, 
there would be the recognition within the, within the context of the dream. Paolo is over there. And I sense that he's thirsty and I have some water. So the recognition is there. The motivation is there to give him the water. I give him the water. He receives it. But you know what doesn't happen? There's no one over there to actually enjoy the water. It will look like it, but it's like watching a movie. I mean, he'll take the water, and I'll, I'll have the appearance of, oh, there goes the water down the hatch. But in the dream, there's nobody there. There's no subject over there who is enjoying the water that he appears to be drinking because there's only one subject, and that's me. It's my dream, and everybody else is a figment of my imagination, right? So whether I give him a nice glass of water, he doesn't enjoy it because there's nobody there. Or now if we flip it on the other side, and I'll say not Paolo, I'll say, um, I, when I want to be anonymous, I say Jack and Jill, because I'm not referring. So here's Jack over here. Can't stand Jack. Take out my gun. I shoot him. Okay? So there's the intention. Oh, there's Jack, my enemy. Don't like him. Want to kill him. Get out my gun. Have an intention. Bang. So recognition, motivation, enactment. But what didn't happen is nobody died. I shoot him three times in the chest. He falls over and goes, oh, like that. Nobody's there. Nobody suffered. So that's the part that's missing. That's another reason then why karma enacted in the dream is not as powerful as karma enacted in the waking state. Because somebody does enjoy the water, or you kill somebody in the waking state, they suffer. That has a major impact on their lives, right? And so that increases the karma. So it's a very interesting thing about karma, that it's not just subjective. The depth, the power of the karma is also related to the entanglement with the people with or the environment that you're engaging with. Okay? So because there's this ongoing entanglement, this pratita samudpada, this codependent origination of subject and object mutually arising, mutually interfacing, we send karma out into the world. That is, we do something in the world. The impact that it has on the world has an impact on our own mind streams and the, the power of the karma that it accumulated. I got a very uh, good example of that years ago, 35 years ago when I was living in Switzerland, and my teacher there, Gishar Apton, made a comment about a hotel that was just down below our, our monastery. And a very nice hotel, but out in the field, this was in Switzerland, out in the field next to the hotel, somebody had put up one of those uh, electric screens uh, that would attract insects, and then when the insect came, the insect would be electrocuted. And so it actually attracted insects to kill them, right? And he saw that from a Buddhist perspective. It's quite a sad thing to do. Uh, and he made this comment, though. It really lingered with me. This is 35 years ago I heard it. He said, the people who put that up, who erected it, turned it on, and then they keep it on day and night, you know, the people who did that with the intention that this would kill a whole bunch of insects, every time an insect flies into it and dies, they get more karma. So they walk away, they're having tea, they're raising their children, going on vacation and so forth, and every time another insect comes and goes Zzz! and gets fried, the people who put that up get more karma. Even though they're not thinking about it anymore. They put that up voluntarily, deliberately, to do that, and it's happening, and so the karma keeps accumulating. Every time another insect bites the dust. So there it is. When any, any discussion of karma has to make this point, and then I will stop. And that is, we're accumulating karma with every voluntary act, an act of the mind. So 
lest we just keep on going on and on and on about karma because we've barely scratched the surface. One point really has to be made. And that is, again, with every voluntary act, wholesome or unwholesome, uh, more karma is being accumulated. And so, and, and a simple action, one action, can actually propel one into another life. So then one can ask, well, wait a minute, this would Im imply an inconceivably great backlog of karma that you haven't been able to get around to ripening because you just keep on accumulating more and more, and yet this is all in the case of one lifetime. So how can you ever experience the fruition of this enormous amount of karma we've accumulated just in this lifetime, let alone the backlog of karma accumulated in the previous lifetimes? Why don't you just have this massive mounting debt of karma that just gets infinitely large while you're just going from lifetime to lifetime and just getting fruition a little bit, a little bit, but all the time accumulating more karma? And the reason that doesn't happen, of course we have a backlog of karma, but why it's just not always just getting overwhelmingly massive is because, for, as the Buddha himself said, with every enactment of virtue, every act of kindness, every act of benevolence, every virtuous act, that by the very enactment of virtue, that is already negating karmic imprints of non-virtue or negative. Likewise, every time we engage in something negative, that will negate, or certainly can negate, positive. So there's, there's a great deal of negation, negation taking place, right? And so what do we do about karma already accumulated? Are, again, are we predestined to have to experience the fruition of every karma that, we've, that we somehow accumulated? And the answer is no. And this is where these remedial powers come in, looking back upon a deed. When we see something as unwholesome that we've committed, looking back on it, recognize it, recognizing it as harmful, developing authentic, reality-based remorse for the deed without looking upon oneself as a terrible person, the deed may be a terrible act, and then engaging in actions to purify it, and then finally making very firm resolve to the best of our ability not to replicate such unwholesome or harmful behavior. So these four remedial powers, through such one can, they say metaphorically, burn the seeds of a great deal of negative karma, clean the slate so that you never have to experience the fruition of that karma. So that's very important to do. It's also important not to overdo it. Shantideva says this. It's often not commented. But when we feel remorse, don't get bogged down kind of in a vortex of just remorse lingering and lingering and lingering and lingering. When there's an unwholesome deed, focus, develop the remorse, develop a strong, re strong resolve not to replicate, and move on. But don't let yourself get mired down in guilt, low self-esteem, self-recrimination, and just living a life wallowing in remorse, as Shantideva says, it will take all the joy out of your practice. So we come back to that theme. Uh, the Dharma really is to be practiced with joy. So a lot more can be said about karma, but not now. There's a lot of good literature out there. But now let's move on in the text. And I'm going to be brief because it's now almost 5.30, and we've really had a dearth of conversation, of dialogue, of question and answer. So this afternoon we start. So I'm just going to touch on this one line. And the line coming up is one that you'll probably not see in many books that are commentaries to the seven-point mind training. I have in my library a handwritten a photocopy of a handwritten uh, commentary that dates back many, many centuries. It's probably the first one that was written down as a commentary to the seven-point mind training. Uh, it's almost a 1,000 years old by Serchil Bua. He's one of the old, old Kadampa masters. 
And he wrote a commentary just a couple of generations, one or two generations after it was first, the seven-point mind training itself was written down by Chekawa. And in that version, which is now one of the earliest versions, this line that I'm about to quote is found, but in many other redactions of this text, it's disappeared somehow. And I don't know why, but it's a very cool line. And I'll give it in Tibetan. So in Tibetan, very easy. Once you've achieved stability, once, once stability is achieved, sangwa deng. Sangwa means something that's secret, something that's mysterious, something that's not clear, something that's veiled. And den means reveal, make it manifest. So once stability is achieved, reveal the mystery. Reveal that which is a secret, not that somebody is keeping it a secret, but it's a secret to you because you don't know it yet. And it's a secret in the sense of something that is right there, but you're not seeing it. So we can call it hidden in plain sight. And what is this sangwa? What is this secret, this mystery that is to be unveiled, to be manifested, to be revealed once you've achieved stability? And that mystery, that secret, the nature of the mind. Nature of the mind. Fundamentally, that's the short answer. Now, what's remarkable here, a good friend of mine who's a very, very fine neuroscientist and very committed to a materialistic view of the brain, the mind, the universe, very, very committed to it, um, I think unquestioningly. So he commented to me to show that he was open-minded, and to some extent he is. He's a very nice fellow. But he commented, oh, Alan, I appreciate the great mystery of consciousness, that it's not known. But one day, you know, one day. But for the time being, I appreciate that it's a great mystery. That's nice. But what it doesn't register is maybe consciousness is not a mystery for everybody. I would like to come back to him and I say, you know, my friend, I appreciate the great mystery of whether the earth goes around the sun or the sun goes around the earth. I just appreciate it because who, who can say? I appreciate the mystery. But maybe one day we yogis will figure it out. Because after all, we have the only way to know reality. That would look quite comic. So there's really a relativity here. For a whole civilization, some aspects of reality may be a mystery. Because they've never developed the methods for making it no longer a mystery to actually discover something. And so the West is tremendously strong. As the Dalai Lama said, in 1997 in Santa Barbara. He spoke very candidly. He doesn't, he's not usually this blunt. But I heard him say it. Tutan Jimbo was translating. And, I, and then I transcribed it, edited, and published it in a book called uh, uh, Buddhism and Science. Uh, and His Holiness said on that occasion, he said, when it comes to the, and this is a very close paraphrase, His Holiness said, when it comes to the external universe, the physical universe, we Buddhists have a lot to learn from science. So much knowledge, so much wonderful technology, so many discoveries. We have a lot to learn from you. But when it comes to the mind, you folks are still in kindergarten. It's not usually that blunt. I appreciate bluntness, because I actually entirely agree with him. For the actual nature of the mind, not that there, not that there, are not, not that there have not been 
great strides in understanding mental disease, mind-brain relationships, nature of psychosis, treating a wide variety of psychoses and neuroses, developmental psychology. Uh, clearly, there are many advances. And to be respected, and I know the Dalai Dala Lama does respect it. But what's the nature of mental events? How do they impact the brain? How does the brain influence mental events? Where do mental events arise from? Where are they located? What's the potential of the mind? What are the multiple dimensions of the mind? What are the full potentials of consciousness? What's the role of mind in nature? Mystery. Because you're still looking at behavior and brain. Okay? So the extraordinary hypothesis in Buddhism is that these questions have been answered. They're not a mystery, except for to people who have not yet applied the appropriate technology. The appropriate technology we're working on right now is settling the mind in its natural state, which is an appropriate technology, a refined, sophisticated, replicable mode of observation that can give rise to replicable and profound and transformative discoveries. So when he says, once stability is achieved, I would suggest to interpret this stability here, it's a good English term, and it's a very direct translation from the Tibetan, really has two connotations. Now we see, we've only gone through one verse so far, so we don't have a lot to remember. First of all, train in the preliminaries. And what's that all about? This reflection upon precious human, rebirth, human life, death and impermanence, nature of suffering, nature of karma, or actions and their consequences. What's that all about? Well, of course, it's all about shifting our perspective on the reality but doing that specifically in order to arouse a deep and durable, sustained motivation to redirect one's priorities, one's values, one's aspirations, the very direction of one's life, that one is prioritizing the cultivation of genuine happiness, stepping out firmly on the path of liberation and enlightenment in the context of which the pursuit of hedonic well-being is very important as a stepping stone to the cultivation of genuine happiness. In other words, the hedonic not as an end in itself. Having enough to eat, clothing, shelter, education, medical care, all very important. But if that's all it is, eh, it's hedonic. Whatever you get, you're going to lose. But all of that in preparation to seeking, cultivating genuine happiness, the liberation of the mind, the tapping into the full potentials of consciousness itself, that's what human life is actually about. That's where the meaning lies. Meaning lies in genuine happiness. The preparation is the cultivation or pursuit of hedonic well-being. So it's that radical shift of priorities, a stepping out, an expedition, a different way of viewing reality, and a prioritization of dharma first and everything in the service of dharma. And that includes getting a college education, perhaps marrying, perhaps having children, and so forth and so on, but all for the sake of dharma, for oneself and, one, and others. And so this is not, a, when we're speaking of stability, it's not an ideological stability. Okay, I've got all the right beliefs, I've learned all the laws of karma, I've got the six realms of existence, the three domains of existence, the four noble truths, I think I've now learned Buddhism, I believe all of it, am I okay now? No, you just learned a lot of stuff. So that's not that. It's not, have you got the creed down like a, now a whole big suitcase full of beliefs. But rather, first of all, a stability in terms of orientation, of motivation, of values, a shift towards meaning, towards fulfillment, 
And is that stable or not? Or does it kind of come and go? Is it wobbly? Where we kind of, oh, I was practicing Dharma for a while, but then I got really, 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 really busy. But I'm going to get back to Dharma as soon as I can, but I really do have these affairs that I have to take care of first. But definitely later on, I'm going to get back to Dharma. That's the opposite. This, this is wobbly, wobbly, in and out, kind of flirtation with Dharma. Really like it, but then the eight-week eight retreat was over, and, you know, then I had to go back to reality, back to my non-lucid dream that I euphemistically call my life. So it's st stability is when the insight is so deep and clear that it's irreversible. It's a commitment to Dharma. It may be Christian Dharma, it may be Theravada Dharma, it may be Tibetan Buddhist Dharma, but it's a commitment to Dharma. And the commitment is fast, that is, it's fast like, how do we say, firm, it's stable, it's continuous, that's stability. So that's one kind of thing. Once you're firmly on the track, on the path, a strong commitment. This is the path, this is the orientation, this is the meaning of life. That's a type of stability. Now you're ready. Let the mystery be revealed. What's the nature of the mind? Right? There's one type of stability, and the other kind of stability that I could definitely spend the next seven weeks on, uh, stability of attention. Stabilize your attention. Develop the relaxation, stability, and clarity. Make your mind serviceable. Because we have a grand adventure, a tremendous initiative, a great expedition, a great enterprise to embark upon. And that is to know who we are, what's the nature of the mind, where did it come from, what is its nature, what happens to it, and what is its potential. These are core themes about which modern science has left us largely in the dark. It's very good at investigating the objective, the physical, and quantifiable. But the mind is not objective, it's not physical, and it's not quantifiable. So, not so much progress. Just as Buddhism has made very little progress, I mean, where's the Buddhist theory of gravity? Where's the Buddhist theory, you know, it's not there. Because that's just not where the attention was focused. And the technology was not devised. I think, as I like to say, and I think it's quite literally true, until the 20th century, about the time of Heinrich Harrer, you know, meeting with the Dalai Lama, um, the most sophisticated technology in Tibet, prayer wheel. <laughs> I mean, it really, it's cool. You know, it just goes around and around. It's smooth. It doesn't get caught, you know. It goes around and around. And it's really cool because it's sending, you know, these mantras. It's got mantras engraved in it. And so you're, Om Mani Pemin. And the, the rosary's pretty good. I mean, that's... Two technology, and you do them simultaneously. Like some people can walk and chew gum uh, at the same time, you know, Tibetans. That was a technology. Cool, huh? And it worked so well that they didn't have, you know, prayer wheel 101 and prayer wheel 2 megapixels and, and 3.0. and they, they weren't getting any better. You know, it kind of worked out pretty well about 1,000 years ago. If it works, don't fix it. So prayer wheels then, and water wheels. They're good at water wheels. And one lama in particular made very good bridges. Jaksamba. Quite remarkable. Great lama, actually. But that was pretty much it. So in terms of looking for external progress in technology, boy, you're looking in the wrong place if you're looking to Tibet. Because all of their attention for a culture was really largely in, 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 inwardly directed. Externally, for a thousand years, if you're looking for external progress, pretty much nothing. 
Internal progress, amazing, astonishing. How many people in that society were gaining profound stages of realization? Utterly, I think it's unique in the whole planet of that percentage of people devoting themselves to the spiritual life without parallel. So diametrically opposed to modernity, it's a, it's a nice compliment. So those are the two themes. I'm, I think I'm going to stop there. We'll return to it a little bit. But this stability of cognitive intelligence, stability of values, stability of direction of life, commitment to a path, having that stabilized, and then the attentional stability of really developing shamatha as an immediate preparation for vipassana, because that's exactly where we're going. And the next line is right into vipassana, into insight, ultimate bodhicitta, nature of reality, nature of mind. So Atisha, the originator of these seven, these seven points, takes us right into the deep end of the pool. After just a brief allusion to, do the preliminaries, stabilize your attention. Okay, now roll up your sleeve. We're, we're going now. Right into great depth. Tremendous. So that's where we are. I'll stop there. I've been monologuing for, what, three or four days now. Questions, comments, anything coming up? If you don't look out, I'll probably go back to the notes and talk more. But I'm happy to pause. Anything coming up? Yes, we'll start with Peter. Um, Eastern Buddhism and Indo-Tibetan Buddhism is... The is first one was Eastern Buddhism? Eastern, like yeah, Chinese, East, Japanese. Like yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And Southeast Asian Buddhism, yeah. Indo-Tibetan Buddhism is full of heroes. It's heroes. full of people to inspire That's and, right. and um, as examples. Quite so. But in the West, Buddhism is relatively new. Mm -hmm. And so, specifically with Shamata, we don't really have examples of people who are heralded as having achieved Shamata. Mm -hmm. Is that because it's culturally inappropriate to celebrate individuals' spiritual attainments? Or is it that Western students are not achieving Shamata? And if so, why? That's all, yeah. <laughs> It's uh, still, I have to say, for after all these years, it's still perplexing to me why in Theravada Buddhism, relatively little emphasis on shamatha, and sometimes not even taught correctly. Sometimes it's, ta it's taught out in a flat-out silly way that people just don't even know what they're talking about. People, I know there are people who will give weekend workshops on shamatha and say, oh, on the weekend, you probably should achieve one or two jhanas. This is like saying, yeah, go to kindergarten and, you know, in a few days you probably should get a Nobel Prize in physics. It's just ridiculous, but people say it seriously. And in the West, people are so ignorant. They don't even know that this is total rubbish, you know. So not, not emphasized much all too often when it is emphasized. It's not taught correctly, you know. And in the Indo-Tibetan and in East Asian tradition, uh, even though Chan comes from Jan, which means Jhana, so Chan Buddhism actually is referring to Jhana, which is Samadhi, and Zen is derivative of Chan. Zen also means jhana, which is samadhi. Um, Chinese Buddhism does have some degree of shamatha vipassana and distinction. Zen pretty much 
throws out the distinction. There, it's very, very hard to find in Zen any distinct practices that are specifically for shamatha. And if you're not practicing, you don't achieve it, you know, unless you're a very exceptional person that just get it, gets it spontaneously. In the Indo-Tibetan tradition, in all four schools of, of Tibetan Buddhism without exception, and in the, the great tradition in India for the first 1,500 years, shamatha and vipassana are absolutely paramount. I just spoke with a superb scholar just yesterday by phone. Um, he's the chancellor of the Central University of Tibetan Studies, outstanding scholar. And I just made this comment that in all schools of Buddhism, it is universally accepted that shamatha and vipassana are the core of all Buddhist meditation. That's the heart. And the other things are flowing out of that, bodhicitta, and vajrayana, and chan, and all kinds of other things. And, how re and I commented to him how remarkable and how odd I find it that although there are retreat centers all over Asia, I mean, in, in, in India, Nepal, and Sikkim, Bhutan, Ladakh, and so forth, as well as Tibet, it's very hard to find anybody who's really practicing shamatha or anybody who's really giving rigorous and sustained training in shamatha or in vipassana, for that matter. Although there are many who are doing three-year retreats in Vajrayana, they're doing one-month Vajrasattva retreats, tantric retreats, lamrim retreats, poa retreats, chut retreats, and yet somehow the essence is so often missing altogether. And I just commented, and he said, you're right. It is really bizarre. So this is why I was so gratified when Matthew Ricard told me that he just recently visited Zongsar in Tibet, which is a monastery that, under the tutelage of Zongsar Kinsider Machin. And that, in fact, there are 800 yogis there in full-time retreat, and among them 300 in lifelong full-time retreat, and among those, there are those really devoting themselves to shamatha. But he said that, and he said, Alan, you'll probably be very pleased to hear this, because he knows I emphasize this. So it's rare. So even among Tibetans today, are there those who have achieved shamatha? I have no doubt there are. Some of my teachers have. Yang Tanabuchi is an example. He's achieved shamatha, and Vipassana, and much deeper. So there are people still alive who have achieved it. They are heroes, but they weren't born heroes. They have practiced you know, with great, great integrity and for sustained periods. And pretty much they found in the course of their lives some, some places to practice in a conducive environment. In Tibet, prior to the invasion, monasteries all over the place, hermitages all over the place, caves all over the place, you know, and benefactors very, very happy to, to support you in practice. Um, but now in the West, where really living, dynamic Buddhism for the sake of practice is pretty much about 50 years old. I mean, there was a little bit before then, but not much before the 60s. Uh, so it's mostly in the last 50 years. Um, very few people teaching shamatha, apart from just kind of going through it intellectually, maybe doing a one month here and there. You know, That's nice, like a little hors d'oeuvre. Um, but you could look far and wide to find a Tibetan teacher who is teaching shamatha and giving sustained training to people in a conducive environment and really training them along all nine stages to achieve shamatha, because after all, that's the foundation of vipassana. And vipassana is then the foundation for everything that follows, vajrayana, dzogchen, mahamudra, Everybody knows that, but it's terribly bizarre that while everybody knows that and gives lip service to it, hardly anybody's actually teaching shamatha. And equally importantly, there are extremely few conducive environments for its practice for a sustained period. And so it's to demystify this, because I don't like to just kind of be woolly and, myst and, and you know, mystified, is shamatha is an effect. It comes as a result of practice. But it's not just knowing techniques. It's having skillful guidance, which means you have to have a teacher. Where are the teachers? 
They are there. Andrea is one. I'm another. Um, <laughs> help me out here, Andrea. Rene, Rene Foisi. He spent a couple of years in Shamatha Retreat. Um, Ani Zamba, down in Brazil. She's done a lot of practice. She can teach uh, Shamatha very, very well. She's had a lot of experience. Um, my own teachers, of course, I didn't dream up Shamatha. Gacharambuchi taught me this, Geshe Ngamantaige taught me this, Geshe Rapten taught me this, His Holiness taught me this, Genlam Rimba taught me this. And they all taught me that this is something to be practiced. So I didn't come up with this on my own, you know? But there are very few people who are teaching it now. So number one, very few teachers, which means very few people be being, being taught. And then conducive environment where you can practice for a sustained period. Really, really rare. And so shamatha is an effect. But it requires, for, for that effect to be realized, you need competent teachers, you need an environment. It's very helpful to have spiritual friends engaging in similar practice. Uh, and then you need to do the practice for a sustained period. You should set aside one, two, three, four, five years, as long as it takes. And that's what's missing. What I'm enormously gratified to see is that just over the last two or three years, His Holiness now all over the world has been emphasizing to Tibetans and to Westerners in Estonia, in Australia, in Washington, D.C., and, and just all over the world, really emphasizing now very publicly and repeatedly, hey, we've been overlooking something. It's called shamatha. You should practice it and achieve it. He's seeing this all over the place, to monastics, to non-monastics, Tibetans and non-Tibetans, repeatedly emphasizing. And it was his idea to create a center in Bangalore that's going to be focusing on shamatha and vipassana. Non-sectarian approach, create a conducive environment. And I spoke again with this very influential scholar just yesterday. And he's saying, Alan, this is a marvel. I, I laid out a little bit to what His Holiness has in mind. And of course, I'm involved in that. He said, this is really important. He's a superb scholar and very nice man as well. And he said, Alan, uh, what do you do about teachers? So you create the environment. What do you do about teachers? And I said, that's for His Holiness to figure out. If anybody can you know, find the yogis back there in their caves in Bhutan and Ladakh and Sikkim and so forth and so on and actually entice them to come out of retreat and come to play, such a place and teach shamatha, teach vipassana, drawing, drawing from their own very deep experience, if one man can do it, it is his holiness. So that's, that's for his holiness. And then other people like myself, perhaps Andrea, other people I know, Tibetans and Westerners, <coughs> we can come in, you know, leading weekend workshops, week-long retreats, Maybe there might even be a Western residential teacher there, especially for the outreach and the application in the modern world. Because as this Geshe commented to me, if you're, if you're able to get a, a real yogi with very deep experience to come and teach, that yogi almost certainly will not speak English or even Hindi and may not have that much teaching experience, but could teach directly from, from a very deep experience. So, it'd be very, so I suggested to him it would be optimal to have two types of teachers. Both of them very experienced in meditation, but one with the ability really to reach out to the community, to show the relevance of Shamadha Vipassana for the modern world, and the other one, hopefully with 10, 20, 30 years of very deep meditative experience, to lead the yogis and yoginis, men and women, monastic and non-monastic. But you have to create the environment. So that's the rationale. I couldn't give a short answer to that question. Uh, rationale for His Holiness, really wanted to see this happen and pledged a significant amount of money of his own, of his Dalai Lama fund, to creating such a center. And I think of that as like the sun, you know, directly under the auspices, under the direction of His Holiness, because I'm there just to catalyze, to help. 
but I'd love to see the moon rise in Santa Barbara to create a similar mind-centered contemplative observatory uh, where we'd have the same thing in the West. And then other ones, uh, possibly one day this, when everything gets really settled in and established, maybe this mind center itself can flourish. Who can say? You know, right now, a lot of things need to be worked out, so it's not quite ripe for that, to full into, you know, turn into a full-time, all the, all the year round mind center. Could happen, though. It could happen. But Bangalore, we're looking at a place in Scotland that could be very wonderful. We have this whole group in Australia. There's a whole group of people in Mongolia and Brazil, and in Mexico has already started. They've already got a contemplative observatory. So the vision here is a whole network of some mind centers here and there to hold eight-week retreats and so forth, but then a larger number of contemplative observatories that are specifically created conducive environments for people to be able to engage in sustained practice and optimally with a resonant teacher. And then, if not optimal, okay, at least by Skype, access to a really qualified, experienced teacher so they can get the guidance they need, have the group energy, and a conducive environment to practice for a sustained period. And if we have a, a, a network of contemplative observatories and three or four mind centers sprinkled around the world that would be kind of the hubs for this, um, then I think there could be some very, very deep change. So a real revitalization of this essence of Buddhist meditation which will be relevant then for the Theravada tradition, East Asian Buddhism, as well as Indo-Tibetan. Because this is important for all of them, whether they know it or not. You know. Uh, and I think we're close with, with this strong support now from His Holiness and strong support from grassroots, like in Australia, grassroots in Brazil, grassroots in Mexico, grassroots in the UK right now. A lot of energy coming up and a beautiful property found. We have a marvelous group of people in Santa Barbara, very dedicated to this. And we have some very good leads, I think good beginning in Bangalore, which will be kind of the mother hub directly under his holiness. But the short answer then, that was an elaborate answer, the short answer is quite rare. It's quite rare because the conditions are very rare. Make the conditions much more frequent, then why shouldn't? As his holiness said years ago, when somebody came to him, this is like 40, 40 years ago, somebody, some Westerner came to his holiness. Remember the story? And he said, oh, your holiness. He was basically going, oy vey, oy vey. To his holiness, say, oh, your holiness, we're living in such a degenerate time. Maybe it's no longer possible to gain any realization because everything is so degenerate. You know? oh. Try that one on his holiness, see how that worked. And his holiness said, you're right. These are very degenerate times. Yeah, you're right. But if you practice now like Milarepa, you can achieve like Milarepa. He didn't quite say cut the crap, but that was implied. If you have that motivation, that ethics, that total commitment to practice, as Milarepa did, and he had a pretty heavy karmic burden himself, really heavy, heavier than probably anybody here, and he managed to purify that and achieve incredible realization. So if you practice with that kind of motivation, that kind of dedication, then you have the same chances now as you did a thousand years ago. But we do need conducive environments. That we found. So, couldn't give a short answer, but that's my answer. And it still remains something of a mystery why there aren't a hundred lamas saying the same thing. But as far as I'm concerned, if there's one lama and his name is Dale who is saying this, that's good enough for me. And if all the other ones say, no, 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 I say, yes, yes, yes. One, one lama is good enough for me. But of course, behind this is Padmasambhava, Tsongkhaba, Shantideva. All the great lamas of Tibet were saying the same thing. All the great, great adepts of India were saying the same thing. Shamatinda, Pashtunit. 
are indispensable. Not even debated. There's nothing to debate. So we're poised. All the pieces are there. They just have to come together. Okay? Yeah. Time for a little bit more. One quick one. That was no way that could be a quick one. Anything else coming up? Practice related? Any questions? Any lingering questions about karma? Yes, please. Camila. Your microphone's right there. I think it's not working. Another dead battery. Today is a day of dead batteries. No, just I wanted to know about the man you spoke about. About? Um, you said something about if if this person could, then you you can. Milarepa. Oh, Milarepa. Yes, Milarepa. Not a household term for many people. Yes. Yes. But what about Milarepa? I'm curious about who he is. That's it. Oh, who is Milarepa? Milarepa in three minutes. It's probably, Milarepa lived about a thousand years ago, and it's probably safe to say he's the most beloved of all the Tibetan yogis for a thousand years, which is saying an awful lot. Um, and his life story is tremendously moving. It's been translated a couple of times, the, the, the life of Milarepa, the biography of Milarepa. Uh, it's very, very moving. And, this, and I'll, I'll tell this story, and then we'll have, we'll have dinner. I'll try to tell it very concisely. But it, all Tibetans know it. Any, any Tibetan who's been really raised in their culture, everybody knows the story of Milarepa. And so his father died. He had a sister, his mother, and they actually were pretty prosperous. His father was a pretty prosperous father, uh, a farmer. Farmer, he did pretty well to do. But I think it was his brother, Milarepa's uncle, basically ripped them off. He appropriated the land of his brother and such that Milarepa, his mother, and his sister really became almost like serfs. They were deprived of their own land. They were robbed of their own heritage. And Milarepa's mother was very bitter at this because she'd really been robbed. Her husband died, and then she was totally exploited. And so she really brought her son, her one son, up. She trained him to seek revenge, that his job in life was to make his mama happy, and that was to retaliate and take revenge on his uncle, who had ripped him off and left him in poverty. So that was the upbringing he had. That he was a little a boy and, a, and an adolescent who was being trained for revenge. Please your mama, and loyalty to one's parents is very strong. So he did. And, but the way to, to take revenge on his father was not by just taking out a knife and stabbing him, but the way he chose was using more black magic, using some of the dark powers of the mind that we find. You find that in Mexico, in the older traditions there, the, you know, the shamanistic tradition in Mexico, you find it really all over the world that where people are tapping into the powers of the mind, <coughs> some people do it with malevolent intention. And I actually take that completely literally. I don't think it's just you know, superstition. The mind has to have tremendous power, and it can be used for evil, like any other power in the universe. And so he actually found, not a Buddhist, but one shamanic teacher, and he came to him and he said, this is the situation. My uncle did this. It was absolutely unjust. He's ruined our family, and my mother's told me, take revenge. Can you help me use black magic to take revenge against my uncle? And the man, this, the shaman, listened to him very carefully, and he said, you know, you've got a good case. Yes, I will teach you. This guy deserves what, what he's got, you know, what's coming to him. And so he taught Milarepa black magic. And it was not by the power of shamatha. 
it was by the power of, of basically gaining domination over certain kind of malevolent spirits. So again, believe this or not, but this is the story. And he managed to be able to control these spirits to then commit his revenge against his uncle. And he did it in a very premeditated, actually one can say a very sinister way. He wanted to ruin his uncle financially. And so he set out to destroy his crops. He, sent, he created, with his magical powers, one can say, a hailstorm that wiped out his uncle completely, wiped out the crops. And then he sent another, I won't give all the details, but he, sent, he used his black magic again and killed the whole clan of his uncle, something like 35 people, but spared the uncle and his wife, very deliberately didn't kill them. And it was not with benevolent intent, but rather sinister intent. I want to ruin you financially, and I want to wipe out your whole family so you'll remain, and you'll know I've done it, and you will suffer. That's pretty intense. And he did that. Killed 35 people, as I recall. Wiped them out financially and left them impoverished and with the whole family wiped out. And so he was a mass murderer. He really was. He was a ma There's no nice way of saying this. He was a mass murderer with malevolent intent. But then all of this to please his mama. Because that's what he had been trained to do. After he committed this, then it kind of dawned on him that he'd done something horrendously evil. He felt very deep remorse wanted to turn a new leaf, and he sought out a teacher who could relieve him of this tremendous burden of guilt, of evil that he committed. He sought out a great teacher named Marpa, uh, and he trained under him. Marpa put him through some major, major ordeals, major ordeals that were necessary for him to purify, really like penance, So without going into the whole details. But he did that. He stuck through it, went through all the purify purifying process. And then when Marpa, his teacher, saw that he'd done the purifying practices, the preliminary practices, he'd done what needed to do to really purify his mind, then he brought him to the practice, including Mahamudra. And Milarepa's motivation was absolutely intense, absolute dedication, one direction only. And he devoted the rest of his life to living in solitude in caves around Tibet, tremendous purity, tremendous dedication, and achieved incredibly high realization. And then, as he came out, he never became a great scholar. He never wrote great tomes, you know, Buddhist tomes about Buddhist philosophy and so forth. But he sang extemporaneously songs of realization. They're called nyam in Tibetan. Just flowing forth spontaneously, songs of realization that would just spring forth spontaneously. He'd meet, meet a person, a song would spring out. He'd meet another, song would spring out. So his life story is just filled with his songs. And it's poetry, but poetry to music. And he lived a long life and inspired many, many thousands of people during his lifetime and then for generations after that. But I think one reason why his story is so inspiring to Tibetans and to people like me, uh, universally outside of Tibetan context, is we see, whoa, he was really a sinner. I mean, by any criterion, what he did was really, really evil. But despite that, it was still possible through for him to completely purify all the evil he'd done and turn around completely. This whole notion of turning around on your axis, 180 degrees, he did that big time. And then just became an embodiment of compassion, of bodhicitta, of wisdom. 
and guided many, many beings to enlightenment themselves. So, Andrea, did I get everything right? Is that more or less correct? Okay. So it's a great story. Sometime when you have some leisure to read his life story, to read his songs, uh, they still inspire. They still inspire. So a little bit like some parallel, not a whole lot, but some parallel to St. Francis of Assisi. He wasn't a great sinner, but he was a real playboy, a real goof-off, St. Francis was. And then again, this radical transformation. And then and St. Francis inspires me. The incredible purity, the love, the kindness, the compassion that he embodied. Melarepa is like that. So that's the story of Melarepa. What he is known, though, for was this incredible dedication to practice. He was asked once, what is the key to your success? Because he was known to be, people really knew, he was tremendously enlightened, vast, and, and incredible powers. That is, powers coming now out of his wisdom, out of his compassion. He had, again, now displayed siddhis, or paranormal abilities, mind-boggling, but all motivated by compassion and guided with wisdom. So then, no problem. So he showed many miracles, so to speak. And so someone asked him, what's the key to your success, O Milarepa? What, well, you know, how is it that it became so highly realized? And his answer was, I never let my meditation cushion get cold. Or another person said, what's the key to your success? And he, and he turned his back on the person, lifted up his robes, and, showed, and he mooned him. He showed him his backside. And he said, you see my backside? See the calluses? See the calluses on my butt? That's the key to my success. Always sitting on his meditation cushion. Okay. There are many other stories, but right now it's time for dinner. See you tomorrow morning. And homework. For those of you who do fall asleep quite easily, for those who don't, practice mindfulness of breathing and get a good night's sleep. That's very important. So good night's sleep first. Some people, though, Head on the cushion, five minutes later, they're asleep. If you're one of those kind of people that falls asleep very easily, then what I suggest is when you get into bed, the day's finished, go into the supine position, settle your mind in its natural state, very softly, very gently. And if at some point you really start losing clarity, getting muddled, okay, then mentally snap your fingers, roll over, fall asleep. But there's a possibility here of settling your mind in its natural state while you're there in the supine position and actually falling asleep consciously and going directly into the substrate consciously and then into a dream lucidly. It's a possibility. It's been done. So, but if you have a hard time falling asleep and you try that, you won't fall asleep. You'll just stay awake, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and not getting asleep, which means the next morning you're going to be really wiped out. So decide where you are. Easy sleeper, hard sleeper. Hard sleeper, mindfulness of breathing. Easy sleeper, experiment with settling the mind. See how that goes. Okay. Hola, so have a good night. See you tomorrow morning.